0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 9. Chapter 9 has been a a wearisome trek. It seems as if we have long been in the eastern deserts. And then when we turned our gaze back westward uh, to the green of Europe, we found no relief. But after the darkness comes the light of the Reformation, When we come to chapter 10, and Lord willing, we will begin that work next week. Just a little left to do, really just one more word. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils, and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. The sermon title is lifted from the last word, thefts. And when we see that, I suspect for most of us we might think, well, I'm off the hook tonight because I don't steal. And uh, I certainly hope not. And yet, um, there is some work for us to do this evening on our uh, own souls. Behind theft there is always worldliness a desire for things tenth commandment issues our native covetousness and when i say worldliness i don't i don't want you to become confused if you become confused you'll become dismissive i think by worldliness i don't mean to say um uh, that you have found yourself laboring and laboring after Say a sports car or diamonds and furs and luxury apartments and a mansion and these sorts of things. I I don't think we're likely to find that in our midst. But uh, a preoccupation with and devotion to the things of this world, well, that is a constant battle, isn't it? Something that is always with us. We are certainly more than capable of what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed, aren't we? Matthew chapter 6 verse 31. And it's really this worldliness, this covetousness, this preoccupation with the things of the world that will manifest itself in behaviors like theft. And you still might protest, well, I wouldn't even steal a pen from the office. You know, I'm so scrupulous about these things. And that's not quite what I mean. What happens to our concern for the Lord's house and the Lord's work when, (coughs) say, there's been some unexpected expenses and the budget gets tight? It's very easy for us to reorient ourselves to our temporal estate, isn't it? When, uh, when the trial and the temptation comes, or probably uh, even more immediately germane for us, when our weeks get filled up, when our time gets filled up with what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, what are we going to wear, and so on, we simply find that we don't have the time To link arms with our brethren in the work of the Lord. Or if we do find a lot of time, we're just worn out. There's nothing left in the tank for these sorts of things. And yet, Christ has called us to be servants. To serve him in everything that we do and part of that service to be uh, linking arms with our brethren and cooperating in the extension of the kingdom of God. He has called us to this service. It is due to him. So maybe we are capable of a little bit of theft after all, uh, robbing God in these things. In recent days, we've had a lot of emphasis upon our calling to minister to the lost, the poor, the downtrodden. In one regard, we don't owe them anything, right? But in another another regard, the creator of heaven and earth, to whom all things belong, including our own property and our time, has called upon us to serve them, and to even distribute some of what we consider to be our property to them. Because after all, we're simply uh, the Lord's stewards. So maybe in these more subtle spiritual ways, we are capable of robbing both God and men. And perhaps um, uh, those commandments, the eighth, thou shalt not steal, and the tenth, Shalt not cuff it, still do have some relevance. Perhaps we're not completely over these issues altogether. And I know you might think, well, for the pastor, these things are are easier um, because his time is completely taken up in the Lord's work. I'm just as capable of worldliness as anybody else. I know this fight firsthand, and I have learned that it's not. Uh, It's not a fight that is won at any sort of decisive battle. It's one that will come to us hour after hour and decision after decision. And we must fight manfully over and over again and overcome over and over again. So even while we give thanks, and and we should give thanks, that God has kept us away from some of these grosser And more aggravated forms of theft. We do have some occasion to bewail the presence of the spiritual difficulties that yet uh, remain with us. And now now I I issue a warning concerning these things. um, Because very much as we observed this morning, history teaches us lessons. And as it's given to us prophetically in the scriptures, or you might say with the prophecy added, the history screams to us concerning the ends of these matters. You say, well, what do you mean? Our worldliness, the worldliness that's part of every fallen human being, our inclination to focus not upon the heavens but upon the earth, Our inclination in that regard not only enervates or hamstrings our Christian service, but it will have a tendency, if unchecked, to alter the entire face of religion. And that's part of what the history teaches us. You see, worldliness or covetousness and true Christianity cannot sit comfortably together. They're going to wage war, one with the other. And one or the other is going to prevail in our hearts, and the other is going to be suppressed. So, if uh, covetousness is going to go unchecked in us, if we are going to be worldly, then Christianity and its truth is going to be suppressed. And in its point, in its place, we will invent a religion that is more agreeable to that worldliness, so that our worldliness and our religion can sit comfortably side by side. But true Christianity and worldliness, they can never be comfortable together. This isn't just about the Romanists. We'll look at that. But um, I've seen a fair amount of this in the Reformed churches. We'll talk about that toward the end of the Uh, the sermon uh, by way of application. But just to give you a hint, I I remember there we were. um, I was just being introduced to reformed things. I was learning things about the division of labor and what officers do. And then they forgot to really tell us about what the common people do, but they did emphasize to us what the officers did. And they they emphasized it over and over again. And one man, having listened to one of these sermons, um, not for me, this was uh, at my former congregation, and he said to me, we have just learned that the uh, you know pastor is giving himself to the word and to prayer. And so I am very glad that I can go to work and not have to worry so much about spending m- many hours in prayer, knowing that he does that. Perhaps a misguided uh, lesson from the division of labor. It's almost Roman in its, in its notion. The monks and the nuns have gone off to pray so that we are free to do other things. The whole reason I bring it up, what other things are we doing? Well, we send the ministers off to pray. Worldly things. We're giving ourselves to the things of uh, the world. So you get these subtle forms in the Reformed churches sometimes. You get grosser forms in um, broad evangelicalism, the name-it-claim-it movement. Their covetousness has completely transformed the face of Christianity. It hardly looks like itself anymore. Uh, But I think perhaps history's grossest illustration of this has been Romanism where the covetousness, the worldliness of men uh, uh, twisted and perverted the religion to where no longer it was Christianity, but rather anti-Christianity, almost the complete opposite of itself. And our text brings us there. Remember, in spite of the desolations and the evident wrath of Jesus Christ, West and now East have been Destroyed. It's been a long process, a thousand years, but it has happened in both. In spite of the Lord's evident judgments in the land, the people repented not. They repented not of their religious declension, their worshipping of demons, departed uh, saints, and martyrs. They repented not of their gross idolatries in these martyr cults. And With the first table of the law falling, the bridle was taken off with respect to the second. And now they travel in a vicious, mutually supportive circle. In other words, our worldliness, desire to violate the second table, propels us constantly to alter the face of the first. And the first and its uh, deformity continues to allow us to alter the second. And it goes... Uh, in a circle, as I said. So, um, instead of thou shalt not kill, you have Rome's bloody murders of those professing the true religion. We'll talk about this later when we get to chapter 11, um, but if you'll remember, simply citing the Bible in your defense was a prima facie evidence that you were guilty in the minds of the Romanists. They called the reformers in the East going all the way back to the 7th century, Pelicians, because they were constantly citing Paul. And the, those that would cite Paul were branded uh, heretics. We talked about the fornications of Rome, monks, clergy, common people, and even the popes. I'm not sure if any of you did uh, take up the challenge to go look up Alexander the Sixth but you'll see a prime example of this sort of thing. And then sorceries were used to prop up what was evidently false and wicked. As the mind of man cried out against the absurdities and the conscience of man, his heart cried out against the evident wickedness, all of this was put down by the sorceries. No matter how it might seem to you, it looks as if God is in it. We've got all of these testimonies concerning all of these miracles. And now we come to the thefts. Worldliness is frequently at the bottom of the motivational complex of uh, these perversions in in religion. We uh, don't want the holiness of the true religion and the true God we want worldly things, so we have to change the religion. There were other motives. You think about the, just the way that the men dress themselves, pride, vainglory. Just to put it simply, the, the love of pretty things. We don't want a simple religion with a pastor dressed in plain clothes Uh, We want something that looks more like the Temple of Apollo and the way that the old pagan priests dressed themselves up. Sure was pretty. Sure was something to look at, something to hear, something to smell. Bible, water, bread, and wine, prayers. People dressed, you know, like people. Uh, Not too attractive to us. There was also... um, Ambition and power lust to become a bishop, an archbishop, a cardinal, a pope. These were some of the most powerful positions in all of the world. Some of the most powerful positions that the world had ever seen. These things would motivate you to alter the face of the religion. We talked uh, just last week about their lusts. And tonight we come to avarice and covetousness. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here we pick up uh, mid-thought in verse 5. But Paul complains about false teachers some of their fruits. and some of the characteristic emblems of these men. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. And I'm not sure that there has ever been such a striking instance and illustration of, uh, of uh, the supposition that gain is godliness. I don't think there's ever been anything in it in history quite like the Roman papacy. Gain is godliness. The face of the religion has been transformed. But Paul goes on to say, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Certainly a very challenging saying. Do we find it in our hearts that we could be content with such? We've got food and raiment. You might include a shelter there. We've got clothes for our back and a a roof over our head. We're content. It is enough for me. Are we there yet? It's challenging, isn't it? But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So there the desire for wealth is portrayed as being ever attended with all sorts of temptations and snares, foolish and hurtful lusts that will destroy the soul. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's a very famous statement, isn't it? That the love of money is the root of all evil, and so it has been in the Roman church. And having coveted after it, they have erred from the the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And yet the piercing is not quenched, the lust, and the Lord's arm is stretched out against it still. All of this uh, worldliness ultimately led to theft and some of the greatest thefts in the history of the world. This is another uh, particular sermon where I almost think, if you know something about the history of the Middle Ages, I don't need to say anything else. And tonight I'm not going to give you... um, Uh, dates, and really so many illustrations about particular occasions, I'll just tell you about some of the things that were done and that just went on and on and on, century after century. You might think about the relic fetish that had smitten Christendom. The clergy and the monks would parade about the... uh, Relics of the Martyrs. This was all part of the martyr cult. And people would be allowed to look at them or touch them, perhaps even embrace them. Of course, if the price was right. And there was a graded scale in a price list. You might think about going to a hot dog stand and you see the price list. Well, if I want a hot dog, it's a certain amount. And if I want... A hot dog with chili and onions, it's a certain amount more. So on graded uh, scale of cost here. And the people parted with their money because of the sorceries. The miracles that were reported to uh, attend these things. And you could fill just volumes and volumes with all the legends about these relics healing people and so on. Uh, As I mentioned before, the sorceries kept propping up this tottering falsehood. Because after all, uh, why would anybody part with their hard-earned money to caress a femur? It was because of the legends about the healing power of all of these sorts of things. There was the indulgence. This is probably the greatest fault, uh, fraud of all, and, and propped up with an elaborate fiction, as elaborate as anything that the Greeks or the Romans invented concerning their gods. Uh, just a bit about its history. Initially, it could be offered by bishops, an indulgence could be offered by any of the bishops, to their clergy or to their laity, and it was conceived of to, to lift ecclesiastical penance. And basically what they meant by that is, this is probably a little bit anachronistic because they don't quite do it the same way, but similar. But it's like uh, if uh, in the confessional you had been assigned so many Our Fathers and so many Hail Marys, by the payment of a fee, somebody else would do those for you, a priest or a monk. And so in that way, your ecclesiastical penance could be lifted upon the principle that the laborer in your place is worthy of his hire. By the 12th century, the Pope had monopolized the indulgence because it was obviously so very profitable. And so now bishops could no longer do it themselves, could no longer sell these things themselves. The Pope uh, made this his exclusive trade. And so the whole thing was propped up by this elaborate f- fiction. So we send off all these monks and all these nuns. And of course, there are always those eminent saints down through the ages. And they perform works of supererogation. The idea is that these people are so holy that they actually do more than what God's laws required by their voluntary poverty their their celibacy and their monastic obedience. And so the whole time, since they have more merit than what they need, they are contributing to the heavenly treasury of merit. Now, when you look at the reality, as we've seen, the papists themselves were complaining that uh, the monasteries were little better than brothels. So where all of this holiness and all of these works of supererogation were supposed to be coming from, I'm not sure exactly. But like I said, it's a very elaborate fiction. It's a mythology. <coughs> Good news, though, the Pope has the keys to this heavenly treasury, and he can dispense this additional uh, merit to you, you needy sinner. For a modest fee. And thus the uh, indulgence as it was practiced for centuries. It's very interesting that when the Pope needed money, he became a good deal more generous in the bestowal of these indulgences. This um, peddling of grace, this selling of mercy for money, was really the crying evil that touched off the Reformation. And we'll, we'll come to this just so offensive uh, to even the natural sensibilities of man, but now the Pope is doing much better he 's not just remitting ecclesiastical penance but purgatorial penance and Part of the great zeal of the papacy to prop up the absolute fiction of purgatory was that the the purgatory, purgatory is a big money maker if you got enough merit. For yourself, by means of indulgences, if you participated in a crusade or something like that, you had full and free forgiveness uh, for yourself. You are no longer a cash cow, unless I can convince you that you also need indulgences for your deceased ancestors. You can deliver them out of purgatory. The ones you know and the ones you don't know. So I can still milk you for uh, more profit in this regard. So they invent this, uh, purgatory. In some ways, all of these things came together in the practice of, uh, pilgrimages. They would visit the martyr sites. There would frequently be relics there. These, uh, martyr or saint shrines all over the place. It was customary for them to make donations at these sites. They would buy, um, and they would buy indulgences at these at these places, usually trying to get rid of some bit of sin or guilt that they were carrying with themselves. Let me give you an illustration of this. the The most famous is actually the declaration of the Jubilee years at Holy Rome. The idea, beginning with Boniface the Eighth in the year 1300, was that. Um, If you came to Rome as the pilgrimage site and you visited all of its uh, churches and made certain customary donations, you would have the cancellation of all your sins and the guarantee of salvation. So, of course, people would be very anxious for these Jubilee years. And it was said that as it progressed, they could have as many as two million additional visitors to Rome during the Jubilee time. So that's not that's not including all the people that lived there, lived around there, or took pilgrimages there anyway. We're talking about two million uh, additional, and they brought their coins with them, something that the papacy very much desired. We'll come back to that in just a, a, a few moments. You could find the remission of a great many sins by bequeathing your estate at your death to the church or to a monastery. This uh, carried with it a pretty hefty indulgence. But if you had been particularly wicked, then your surviving relatives would be encouraged to purchase additional indulgences for you and also to buy masses for you. So they would pay priests and monks to go on conducting masses on your behalf so that you could spring from purgatory uh, more quickly. Are you starting to get a feeling for the age? I mean, I'm not... This is is just sober history. And this is one of the reasons why they had reforming council after reforming council after reforming council before the Reformation. They recognized this, uh, this is starting to appear a bit shady. Simony, do you know what this is? Simony? This is the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices and benefices, livings. Uh, you could buy these things. If you, some of you have seen the old black and white Martin Luther, where um, uh, Albert of Mainz sends his brother to purchase an additional living, but to purchase four is highly irregular—an irregularity that we can get over provided the price is right. And so uh, they would sell these these things. Remember what we discussed last week? If you were a celibate clergyman or a monk, you could purchase a license for your concubine and your illegitimate child. So, you see, in this Roman religion, before the fall of Constantinople, there was an awful lot of money changing hands. You might wonder if the fishermen of Galilee would have even recognized their religion at all in these things. Well, after the fall of Constantinople, rather than things getting better by repentance, in this regard, they just got much worse. So you, you remember in the early 1500s, we're going to be getting into Martin Luther territory. So, but we're talking about here after the Reformation, 1453, or after the fall of Constantinople, 1453 and following up to that time. The sale of rosaries became a hot business. And once again, these rosaries in particular ones would frequently have legends attached, lying miracles and so on. Now we come back to the jubilees. The popes thought these jubilees every 50 years, because after all, that's what a biblical jubilee was. uh, This is no longer adequate. We'd like to bring these 2 million souls into Rome every 33 years. And then that was no longer adequate. So they worked their way down all the way to 25. And so now you can have, uh, this is the way only the Pope could count. You could have a 50-year celebration every 25 years. And so uh, this, the sale of indulgences and all of this rapid change of hands was uh, bleeding Christendom of money. Uh, now, if you remember, the, the, what uh, roused the ire of that little German monk was the fact that Germany in particular was being bled of all of its money to build Roman cathedrals in Italy. And the idea was, why are we sending all of our German money down to Italy? Italy for the benefit of Italians didn't seem to be making a lot of sense, but there was something very offensive. If you understand, if you have any notion of what grace is, we certainly don't earn it. If you remember recent sermons, we certainly don't earn it. That's to misunderstand grace completely. We're not going to earn it by our good works. It's, it's three steps more offensive to say we're going to buy it with our money. You see what I'm saying? We're not going to earn it by our piety. How much more offensive to say that we're going to buy it with our coins so that we can run on in our impiety and continue on in our wickedness. The 95 theses that touched off the Reformation were directed against the sale of the indulgences and the buying of grace. And... uh, Luther at that point was just getting started in his understanding of uh, of the gospel, just getting started, and so we leave things there on the very border of uh, the Reformation. And Lord willing, we will return to that bright and shining light after this great and wearisome darkness. But my use tonight is just one: let us walk in repentance with respect to our worldliness. I hope that we find our text in the history a little bit frightening because it does make an open display of the matter. If we don't fight the battle there in the heart, if we don't fight our worldliness there at its first motions, its tendency is going to be to alter the entire face of our religion. Uh, Because we're going to want to invent a religion with which our Worldliness might sit comfortably. It's uh, the Romans' one dynamic and syndrome. And if I might say so, uh, this doesn't just have to apply to to Romanism, and it doesn't have to be as gross as Romanism. Uh, We're fully capable of inventing a religion that will make room for our worldliness without it being so obvious. Uh, We can be very subtle in our sinfulness. So just to give you an illustration with which I think you might be able to give a ready amen, you just think about the millions of Sunday-only evangelicals. So, we're worldly, six days a week. You could scarcely tell us from the family, the unbelieving family, uh, next door. Uh, What's the difference? Well, we go to church on Sunday. Small price to pay. Well, Sunday morning. We don't want to become radical or zealous or something like that. And so here we have the invention of a religion uh, that's most agreeable to our worldliness and very little disturbing to it. Here's our danger as reformed people. We can say our religion is doctrinally pure, more highly developed doctrinally than what we're likely to run into outside of these walls. We are scrupulously precise about worship and government issues, but even given all that, there's still quite a bit of room for my worldliness, isn't there? And in some ways, we've still managed to create a Sunday-only religion because that's the only time that we bump into the government and the worship after all. And, you know, we can still probably think an hour or so every day about a doctrinal matter and still be worldly and still have left a lot of room for our worldliness. In our uh, ongoing study of the Bible, we might find a Uh, We might find some passages to be somewhat disquieting and uncomfortable to us. Uh, Especially when uh, the Lord says things like, Love me with all that you are. Starts talking about a, a, a service that's like dying. And that you'll only find your life when you give it up completely. And so on. We might find ourselves disquieted with these things for a bit. But we can get over that too. We can make some intelligent-sounding reflections about these things and go right back to our worldliness, right back to ourselves, right back to the wholehearted maintenance of our own estates. But the simple fact of the matter is that true Christianity will not sit peacefully with our worldliness And when those two things come together, the war is on. And it's a war that will not stop. Uh, The most that we can hope for in this life is to overcome so habitually uh, that it grows a bit quieter, but uh, it's a war that does not stop. And when I talk about true Christianity, uh, not sitting peacefully with our worldliness, it's when it requires things like, taking from my hand and putting it in yours, whatever it is. The Lord has given me a little something. I see that you don't have enough. And so I take what's in my hand and I place it in yours. That's a sign that the back of worldliness is being broken. Or um, no longer uh, having my life orbit around the maintenance of my worldly estate. I just orbit around it. And really all of our activities are simply feeding into that. But rather organizing my worldly estate so that I might serve Christ with it and others with it because Christ is so commanded. See, it's very interesting because sometimes those things can look very much the same, but there's a world of difference in motivation. And I think certainly, ultimately, a world of difference in outcome. But do you understand the difference? My principal concern is not uh, to maintain my worldly estate, but to take the things that the Lord has given me and turn them around for the extension of his kingdom, for his glory, and the good of the people that the Lord has put around me. And this is also a sign that worldliness, the back of worldliness, is being broken uh, in our lives. And again, as I, as I preach to you, I preach this to myself. I'll tell you something about, about ministry. They're every bit as capable as being every bit as worldly as anybody else. And thinking about their things in worldly terms. Like, we've got to get the church to grow, or my goose is cooked, and these, these sorts of things. Actually, a reference to Huss in passing. But um, but you understand, we're all very care- capable of this thing. And I know, if I, if I might say so, I know that you've heard these sermons. Haggai was very much taken up with this theme. Um, we focus on our temporal estates. We pursue our life, and we end up losing it. But then we give up our lives in the service of the Lord, and we find our lives. And we're taken care of temporally beside by a very generous Lord. Uh, That was one of the great messages of, of Haggai. And I know that you've thought about it. I've thought about it. And I know you've probably thought to yourself, you've probably heard some of those sermons, and you thought to yourself, I'm going to do it. Why don't I just change the life that I've been living? Just forget it. Leave it behind and do it in a different way. And give myself completely to the Lord. Fall into his arms. Be his servant. Be different than what, I, what it was. But old habits have a hard gravitational pull to them, don't they? They have a hard pull. And we find ourselves, we leave Sunday night with lots of resolutions, but I'm on my way to work Monday morning and I get way late. The car's making a funny noise. And we can't afford this. And now I'm a bit distracted. And then I do something extreme, like I'm going to work some, some overtime to... Get this alternator taken care of, and before you know it, we're just pulled right back into into the orbit, and we get to church the next Sunday, and Haggai continues, and I thought, what have I been doing? What have I done this week? How did it get away from me again? I know, I know. We need to repent. But then we need to learn what it means to walk in that repentance, which means um, recognizing that the tendency, the draw to the worldliness is constant and it's constantly with us. The world is always pulling us towards itself. And we've got the traitor inside that's just ever so happy to be pulled, right? And so we find ourselves being pulled right back. And it's so easy to get pulled back. That's to roll downhill. We're talking about rolling the rock uphill, which requires constant attention, or it's just going to roll back down on its own. So as the worldliness in our heart is constantly clamoring for our attention, we have to put it down again and again and again, decision by decision by decision. And that's what I mean by walking in the repentance. Right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. Um, You know, and it it comes down to to very real things. Like, um, I know that the alternator belt is squealing This is a harbinger of a bad thing. And I know that when the alternator goes, it's going to require money. And there is some measure of Christian duty as far as keeping an eye upon those things. But here's the rub. Sometimes we can't have everything and we're going to have to choose. I can take on... The overtime and let go of what the church is hoping to do with warming night, at least my participation in it, or any thoughts of food and clothing, closet, and all these sorts of things. I can take the overtime, or I can do that, but I can't do both. Wish that I could, but I can't. And I'll tell you something. I don't think that the Lord intends to leave it as an option for us that we can serve two masters. Ultimately, he puts it to us and you're going to choose the one or the other. And don't think of it in terms of just one decisive battle. Think of it as the belt squealing. It's a little frightening, but I'm going to go serve the Lord on Saturday and trust that he's going to help us make ends meet. Because he's left me with a promise that as I seek his kingdom and its righteousness, he'll add these other things to me. And I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to look at my temporal estate in a different way. Not just simply think about how I can uh, grow it or how I can keep it from falling down around my ears. But but can, can I arrange it in a way according to wisdom where I can use it to advance the kingdom of God? So it's no longer competing with God, but I begin to use it as a tool for the advancement of His kingdom. Um, well, that requires a lot of uh, wisdom in the making of some different decisions. Right foot, left foot, right foot. I fell down, but I got to get back up with the next decision. Not wait till Sunday. Get back up. Right foot left foot walking in repentance turn with me in your bibles to isaiah chapter 58 See, the Lord complains in this text, a, a fast is contemplated. We're squirrely creatures, slippery in our, in our sinfulness, able to take even a fast and make it a, an exercise of religion that's still just about us and for us. Just some more benefiting of ourselves by these things. Verse 3, wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. So Fast times are very much like Sabbaths, when we leave off these things. And yet, somehow, even while they're fasting, they still manage to seek all of their own pleasures and all of their own labors unto profit. Behold, ye fast for strife and bait, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high? Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? What thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? So here he's talking about the externals of it. And is he going to be pleased in those externals of religion? We're ultimately behind the whole thing is just more worldliness Oh, the Lord is a spirit. Our God is the searcher of hearts and he deals with the hearts of men, not just what we're doing on on the outside. And then he goes on to talk about the fast that pleases him. And it's beautiful. Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? So here's, the Lord says, here's a fast that is pleasing to me, and think about this. But to take something out of your hand and to put it into the hand of another person that has a need. To see somebody in bondage and to smash their shackles. It's what we've been talking about. It's looking out beyond ourselves and serving others. And he says, this would be an acceptable fast. A fast that's well-pleasing to the Lord. To take your bread and to give it to somebody else to see a poor person cast out of their house and to bring them into your own, to see the naked and to clothe him with something that belongs to yourself and to no longer make excuses and by your excuses to hide yourself from others. i am spent, I'm too tired. I was deeply impressed with uh, a passage that we had in, in family worship this week. You'll remember the episode the Lord Jesus has sent the twelve away on mission, and he himself has continued in his work of preaching, teaching, healing, and ministering. And uh, as they have worked in their various locations, they have labored themselves to weariness. They come together again. They give their report to the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus is very pleased, but he recognizes that everyone is tired. And he says, come aside, let us rest a while. Because after all, the Lord knows our frame. He had a human nature that uh, had its limits. It needed, you remember the weariness of the Lord when he lay down in the boat and fell asleep. Not even the storm would wake him up. Picture of someone who's tired and who trusts the Lord, right? Trusts his father. So uh, he says to them, as my wife has said to me from time to time, come aside, man, and let's rest a while. This is good, good doctrine and good practice. But you remember the scene. So the Lord says, let's get in the boat and press out and go into a desert place where there aren't people. And you imagine the scene as he's trying to get away. They look along the coast and the people are running around the side of the lake in the Sea of Galilee is not small. And they're running around to the other side so that when they get to the other side, they are besieged by multitudes of people, thousands and thousands of people. So there they are. I've known this, actually, in, in the work of the ministry, and I... My wife sent me away one time to North Carolina to my parents. She said, don't worry about the family, don't worry about, don't worry about the church, go away and, and rest a while. The only way I would be spared is to lose all phones and internet connection. Um, I didn't have a moment's peace the whole time I was, I was there, and so it is. But here's what struck me. The Lord, in spite of the fatigue of himself and his men, it said he had compassion upon the people because they were as sheep without any shepherd. And do you know what the Lord did? He didn't give them a 15-minute homily and, and send them away. It says he taught them until nightfall. So he teaches them all day long in their weariness. And of course, his... Apostles are there and they have to help and support and work as well. And then at the end of the day, the apostles are saying, certainly there's no bread for them in this desert place, so let's send them away now. And the Lord doesn't even send them away then because he has compassion upon them and he's afraid that they're going to faint in the way. This is breaking the back of worldliness in a big way to spend and to be spent in the advancement of the kingdom of God, to take what God has given and to give it away just as fast as it's being given. Uh, And what a great example in our Lord, even while he recognizes that he and his men have physical bodily needs, his compassion moved him to continue in the work to feed their, souls with spiritual bread. And then at the end of the day, when certainly with respect to the flesh, there's nothing left in the tank, he will feed their bodies as well before he, before he sends them away. We continue in our text, 58.8. A promise that's attached to this kind of fast. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning. And thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward, thy rear guard. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. You remember their problem before was they were fasting for themselves, continuing on in their worldliness, and then complaining that the Lord won't hear. He says, oh, I'll hear all right. If you take up this kind of fast, a spiritual fast, principal concern is not the gratification of the flesh, but spiritual benefit and profit for ourselves and for others. The advancement of the kingdom of God. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. If thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then thy light uh, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. That's very interesting to us if we think about our own work. Remember they did do the formal things of the fast. They put on sackcloth and ashes, as it were. They, um, there was a certain day appointed. They afflicted their souls. They were bowed down like a bulrush. There were even ashes involved. The form was kept up. But he says, you want me to hear, and then you want your light to shine. It's not in that, or at least not in that alone. But it's in this service And this desire to advance the kingdom. Verse 11. And the Lord shall guide thee continually. And satisfy thy soul and drought. And make fat thy bones. Here's um, Here's a fast that will make your bones fat. A sign of spiritual wealth. Even while you've put away your food. And thou shalt be like a watered garden. And like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. Do we want to be useful in uh, helping other Christians and drawing a fractured church together? Verse 12. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the bre- breach. The restore of paths to dwell in a different way of thinking about uh, these things. So again, I knew I knew that you you might even think you know it's discouraging. I've I've fallen down a hundred times uh, concerning these things. But in the Lord there is strength to rise yet again, and tomorrow yet again, and tomorrow yet again. Um, we might very well hit a stride at some point, um, no longer having um, the legs of a colt, but perhaps hyan's feet with some practice of making some different decisions. But we do need to be sober. The worldliness will be with us. But the Lord is able to overcome and give us victory as we walk with him. Not just an encounter, not just a meeting, but a walk with him. Until he leads forth strength unto victory over the worldliness. And then as that victory comes and we reach out with service, he says that he'll hear us and he'll cause the light to shine. And if we have that sort of spirituality and that sort of selfishness, it will be a bright and shining light indeed. Let us pray.